Phase the Seventh Fulfillment Part Two. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Fifty Seven. Meanwhile, Angel Clare had walked automatically along the way by which he had come, and entering his hotel, sat down over the breakfast, staring at nothingness. He went on eating and drinking unconsciously till on a sudden he demanded his bill having paid which he took his dressing-bag in his hand the only luggage he had brought with him and went out at the moment of his departure a telegram was handed to him a few words from his mother stating that they were glad to know his address and informing him that his brother cuthbert had proposed to and been accepted by mercy chant Clare crumpled up the paper and followed the route to the station. Reaching it, he found that there would be no train leaving for an hour and more. He sat down to wait, and having waited a quarter of an hour, felt that he could wait there no longer. Broken in heart and numbed, he had nothing to hurry for, but he wished to get out of a town which had been the scene of such an experience, and turned to walk to the first station onward and let the train pick him up there. The highway that he followed was open, and at a little distance dipped into a valley, across which it could be seen running from edge to edge. He had traversed the greater part of this depression, and was climbing the western acclivity, when, pausing for a breath, he unconsciously looked back. Why he did so he could not say, but something seemed to impel him to the act. The tape-like surface of the road diminished in his rear as far as he could see and as he gazed a moving spot intruded on the white vacuity of its perspective it was a human figure running clare waited with a dim sense that somebody was trying to overtake him the form descending the incline was a woman's yet so entirely was his mind blinded to the idea of his wife's following him that even when she came nearer he did not recognize her under the totally changed attire in which he now beheld her it was not until she was quite close that he could believe her to be Tess. "'I saw you turn away from the station just before I got there, and I have been following you all the way.' She was so pale, so breathless, so quivering in every muscle, that he did not ask her a single question, but seizing her hand and pulling it within his arm he led her along. To avoid meeting any possible wayfarers, he left the high road and took a footpath under some fir-trees. When they were deep among the moaning boughs, he stopped and looked at her inquiringly. "'Angel,' she said, as if waiting for this, "'do you know what I have been running after you for? To tell you that I have killed him?' A pitiful white smile lit her face as she spoke what said he thinking from the strangeness of her manner that she was in some delirium i have done it i don't know how she continued still i owed it to you and to myself angel i feared long ago when i struck him on the mouth with my glove that i might do it some day for the trap he set for me in my simple youth and his wrong to you through me he has come between us and ruined us and now he can never do it any more i 
never loved him at all, Angel, as I loved you. You know it, don't you? You believe it? You didn't come back to me, and I was obliged to go back to him. Why did you go away? Why did you, when I loved you so? I can't think why you did it. But I don't blame you. Only, Angel, will you forgive me my sin against you, now I have killed him? I thought as I ran along that you would be sure to forgive me now I have done it. It came to me as a shining light that I should get you back that way. I could not bear the loss of you any longer. You don't know how entirely I was unable to bear your not loving me. So you do now, dear, dear husband. Say you do, now I have killed him. I do love you, Tess. Oh, I do. It is all come back, he said, tightening his arms round her with fervid pressure. But how do you mean you have killed him? I mean that I have, she murmured in a reverie. What, bodily? Is he dead? Yes. He heard me crying about you, and he bitterly taunted me, and called you a foul name. Then I did it. My heart could not bear it. He had nagged me about you before. And then I dressed myself and came away to find you. By degrees he was inclined to believe that she had faintly attempted at least what she said she had done, and his horror at her impulse was mixed with amazement at the strength of her affection for himself, and at the strangeness of its quality, which had apparently extinguished her moral sense altogether. Unable to realize the gravity of her conduct, she seemed at last content, and he looked at her as she lay upon his shoulder, weeping with happiness, and wondered what obscure strain in the d'Urberville blood had led to this aberration, if it were an aberration. There momentarily flashed through his mind that the family tradition of the coach and murder might have arisen because the d'Urbervilles had been known to do these things. As well as his confused and excited ideas could reason, he supposed that in the moment of mad grief of which she spoke, her mind had lost its balance and plunged her into this abyss. It was very terrible if true, if a temporary hallucination, sad. But, anyhow, here was this deserted wife of his, this passionately fond woman, clinging to him without a suspicion that he would be anything to her but a protector. He saw that for him to be otherwise was not, in her mind, within the region of the possible. Tenderness was absolutely dominant in Clare at last. He kissed her endlessly with his white lips, and held her hand, and said, I will not desert you. I will protect you by every means in my power, dearest love, whatever you may have done or not have done. They then walked on through the trees, Tess turning her head every now and then to look at him. Worn and unhandsome as he had become, it was plain that she did not discern the least fault in his appearance. To her he was, as of old, all that was perfection, personally and mentally. 
he was still her Antinous, her Apollo even. His sickly face was beautiful as the morning to her affectionate regard on this day no less than when she first beheld him, for was it not the face of the one man on earth who had loved her purely, and who had believed in her as pure? With an instinct as to possibilities he did not now, as he had intended, make for the first station beyond the town, but plunged still further under the firs, which here abounded for miles. Each clasping the other round the waist, they promenaded over the dry bed of fir-needles, thrown into a vague, intoxicating atmosphere at the consciousness of being together at last, with no living soul between them, ignoring that there was a corpse. Thus they proceeded for several miles, till Tess, arousing herself, looked about her, and said, timidly, are we going anywhere in particular? I don't know, dearest. Why? I don't know. Well, we might walk a few miles further, and when it is evening find lodgings somewhere or other, in a lonely cottage, perhaps. Can you walk well, Tessie? Oh, yes, I could walk forever and ever with your arm around me. Upon the whole it seemed a good thing to do. Thereupon they quickened their pace, avoiding high roads, and following obscure paths, tending more or less northward. But there was an unpractical vagueness in their movements throughout the day. Neither one of them seemed to consider any question of effectual escape, disguise, or long concealment. Their every idea was temporary and unforfending, like the plans of two children. At midday they drew near to a roadside inn and Tess would have entered it with him to get something to eat, but he persuaded her to remain among the trees and bushes of this half-woodland, half-moorland part of the country, till he should come back. Her clothes were of recent fashion. Even the ivory-handled parasol that she carried was of a shape unknown in the retired spot to which they had now wandered, and the cut of such articles would have attracted attention in the settle of a tavern. He soon returned, with food enough for half a dozen people, and two bottles of wine, enough to last them for a day or more, should any emergency arise. They sat down upon some dead boughs and shared their meal. Between one and two o'clock they packed up the remainder and went on again. "'I feel strong enough to walk any distance,' said she. "'I think we may as well steer in a general way towards the interior of the country, where we can hide for a time, and are less likely to be looked for than anywhere near the coast, Claire remarked. Later on, when they have forgotten us, we can make for some port. She made no reply to this beyond that of grasping him more tightly, and straight inland they went. Though the season was an English May, the weather was serenely bright, and during the afternoon it was quite warm. Through the latter miles of their walk their footpath had taken them into the depths of a new forest, and towards evening, turning the corner of a lane, they perceived behind a brook and bridge a large board on which was painted in white letters, This desirable mansion to be let, furnished. Particulars following, with directions to apply to some London agents. Passing through the gate they could see the house, an old brick building of regular design and large accommodation. "'I know it,' said Clare. "'It's Bramshurst Court. 
You can see that it is shut up, and grass is growing on the drive. Some of the windows are open, said Tess. Just to air the rooms, I suppose. All these rooms empty, and we without a roof to our heads. You are getting tired, my Tess, he said. We'll stop soon. And kissing her sad mouth, he again led her onwards. He was growing weary likewise, for they had wandered a dozen or fifteen miles, and it became necessary to consider what they should do for rest. They looked from afar at isolated cottages and little inns, and were inclined to approach one of the latter, when their hearts failed them, and they sheared off. At length their gait dragged, and they stood still. "'Could we sleep under the trees?' she asked. He thought the season insufficiently advanced. "'I have been thinking of that empty mansion we passed,' he said. "'Let us go back towards it again.' They retraced their steps, but it was half an hour before they stood without the entrance gate as earlier. He then requested her to stay where she was, whilst he went to see who was within. She sat down among the bushes within the gate, and Clare crept towards the house. His absence lasted some considerable time, and when he returned Tess was wildly anxious, not for herself, but for him. He had found out from a boy that there was only an old woman in charge as caretaker, and she only came there on fine days, from the hamlet near, to open and shut the windows. She would come to shut them at sunset. Now— we can get in through one of the lower windows and rest there," said he. Under his escort she went tardily forward to the main front, whose shuttered windows, like sightless eyeballs, excluded the possibility of watchers. The door was reached a few steps further, and one of the windows beside it was open. Clare clambered in, and pulled Tess in after him. Except the hall, the rooms were all in darkness, and they ascended the staircase. Up here, also, the shutters were tightly closed, the ventilation being perfunctorily done, for this day at least, by opening the half-window in front and an upper window behind. Clare unlatched the door of a large chamber, felt his way across it, and parted the shutters to the width of two or three inches. A shaft of dazzling sunlight glanced into the room, revealing heavy, old-fashioned furniture, crimson damask hangings, and an enormous four-post bedstead, along the head of which were carved running figures, apparently Atalanta's race. "'Rest at last,' said he, setting down his bag and the parcel of viands. They remained in great quietness till the caretaker should have come to shut the windows. As a precaution, putting themselves in total darkness by bearing the shutters as before, lest the woman should open the door of their chamber for any casual reason. Between six and seven o'clock she came, but did not approach the wing they were in. They heard her close the windows, fasten them, lock the door, and go away. Then Clare again stole a chink of light from the window, and they shared another meal, till by and by they were enveloped in the shades of night which they had no candle to disperse. CHAPTER 58 The night was strangely solemn and still. In the small hours she whispered to him the whole story of how he had walked in his sleep with her in his arms across the Froom stream, at the imminent risk of both their lives, 
and laid her down in the stone coffin at the ruined abbey. He had never known of that till now. "'Why didn't you tell me the next day?' he said. "'It might have prevented much misunderstanding and woe.' "'Don't think of what's past,' said she. "'I am not going to think outside of now. Why should we? Who knows what tomorrow has in store?' but it apparently had no sorrow. The morning was wet and foggy, and Clare, rightly informed that the caretaker only opened the windows on fine days, ventured to creep out of their chamber and explore the house, leaving Tess asleep. There was no food on the premises, but there was water, and he took advantage of the fog to emerge from the mansion and fetch tea, bread, and butter from a shop in a little place two miles beyond as also a small tin kettle and spirit-lamp, that they might get fire without smoke. His re-entry awoke her, and they breakfasted on what he had brought. They were indisposed to stir abroad, and the day passed, and the night following, and the next, and the next, till almost without their being aware, five days had slipped by in absolute seclusion, not a sight or sound of a human being disturbing their peacefulness, such as it was. The changes of the weather were their only events, the birds of the new forest their only company. By tacit consent they hardly once spoke of any incident of the past subsequent to their wedding-day. The gloomy intervening time seemed to sink into chaos, over which the present and prior times closed as if it had never been. Whenever he suggested that they should leave their shelter and go forwards towards Southampton or London, she showed a strange unwillingness to move. "'Why should we put an end to all that's sweet and lovely?' she deprecated. "'What must come will come.' And looking through the shutter chink, "'All is trouble outside there, inside here content.' He peeped out also. It was quite true. Within was affection, union, error forgiven. Outside was inexorable. And, she said, pressing her cheek against his, I fear that what you think of me now may not last. I do not wish to outlive your present feeling for me. I would rather not. I would rather be dead and buried when the time comes for you to despise me so that it may never be known to me that you despised me. I cannot ever despise you. I also hope that. But considering what my life has been, I cannot see why any man should, sooner or later, be able to help despising me. How wickedly mad I was! Yet formerly I could never bear to hurt a fly or a worm and the sight of a bird in a cage used often to make me cry. They remained yet another day. In the night the dull sky cleared, and the result was that the old caretaker at the cottage awoke early. The brilliant sunrise made her unusually brisk. She decided to open the contiguous mansion immediately, and to air it thoroughly on such a day. Thus it occurred that, Having arrived and opened the lower rooms before six o'clock, she ascended to the bedchambers, and was about to turn the handle of the one wherein they lay. At that moment she fancied that she could hear the breathing of persons within, 
her slippers and her antiquity had rendered her progress a noiseless one so far and she made for instant retreat then deeming that her hearing might have deceived her she turned anew to the door and softly tried the handle the lock was out of order but a piece of furniture had been moved forward on the inside which prevented her opening the door more than an inch or two a stream of morning light through the shuttered chink fell upon the faces of the pair wrapped in profound slumber tessa's lips being parted like a half-opened flower near his cheek the caretaker was so struck with their innocent appearance and with the elegance of tessa's gown hanging across a chair her silk stockings beside it the pretty parasol and the other habits in which she had arrived because she had none else that her first indignation at the effrontery of tramps and vagabonds gave way to a momentary sentimentality over this genteel elopement as it seemed she closed the door and withdrew as softly as she had come to go and consult with her neighbours on the odd discovery not more than a minute had elapsed after her withdrawal when tess woke and then claire both had a sense that something had disturbed them though they could not say what and the uneasy feeling which it engendered grew stronger as soon as he was dressed he narrowly scanned the lawn through the two or three inches of shutter chink i think we will leave at once said he it is a fine day and i can't help fancying somebody is about the house at any rate the woman will be sure to come to-day she passively assented and putting the room in order they took up the few articles that belonged to them and departed noiselessly when they had gone into the forest she turned to take a last look at the house ah happy house good-bye she said my life can only be a question of a few weeks why should we not have stayed there don't say it tess we shall soon get out of this district altogether we'll continue our course as we've begun it and keep straight north nobody will think of looking for us there we shall be looked for at the wessex ports if we are sought at all when we are in the north we will get to a port and away having thus persuaded her the plan was pursued and they kept a bee-line northward their long repose at the manor-house lent them walking power now and towards midday they found that they were approaching the steepled city of melchester which lay directly in their way he decided to rest her in a clump of trees during the afternoon and push onward under cover of darkness at dusk claire purchased food as usual and their night march began the boundary between upper and mid wessex being crossed about eight o'clock to walk across country without much regard to roads was not new to tess and she showed her old agility in the performance the intercepting city ancient melchester they were obliged to pass through in order to take advantage of the town bridge for crossing a large river that obstructed them it was about midnight when they went along the deserted streets lighted fitfully by the few lamps keeping off the pavement that it might not echo their footsteps the graceful pile of cathedral architecture rose dimly on their left hand but it was lost upon them now once out of the town they followed the turnpike road which after a few miles plunged across an open plain though the sky was dense with cloud 
a diffused light from some fragment of a moon had hitherto helped them a little. But the moon had now sunk, the clouds seemed to settle almost on their heads, and the night grew as dark as a cave. However, they found their way along, keeping as much on the turf as possible that their tread might not resound, which it was easy to do, there being no hedge or fence of any kind. All around was open loneliness and black solitude, over which a stiff breeze blew. They had proceeded thus gropingly two or three miles further, when on a sudden Clare became conscious of some vast erection close in his front, rising sheer from the grass. They had almost struck themselves against it. "'What monstrous place is this?' said Angel. "'It hums!' said she. "'Hearken!' He listened. The wind, playing upon the edifice, produced a booming tune, like the note of some gigantic one-stringed harp. No other sound came from it, and lifting his hand and advancing a step or two, Clare felt the vertical surface of the structure. It seemed to be of solid stone, without joint or moulding. Carrying his fingers onward, he found that what he had come in contact with was a colossal rectangular pillar. By stretching out his left hand he could feel a similar one adjoining. At an indefinite height overhead something made the black sky blacker, which had the semblance of a vast architrave uniting the pillars horizontally. They carefully entered beneath and between. The surfaces echoed their soft rustle, but they seemed to be still out of doors. The place was roofless. Tess drew her breath fearfully, and Angel, perplexed, said, "'What can it be?' Feeling sideways they encountered another tower-like pillar, square and uncompromising as the first, beyond it another, and another. The place was all doors and pillars, some connected above by continuous architraves. "'A very temple of the winds,' he said. The next pillar was isolated. Others composed a trilithon. Others were prostrate, their flanks forming a causeway wide enough for a carriage, and it was soon obvious that they made up a forest of monoliths grouped upon the grassy expanse of the plain. The couple advanced further into this pavilion of the night till they stood in its midst. "'It is Stonehenge,' said Clare. "'The heathen temple, you mean?' "'Yes, older than the centuries, older than the D'Urbervilles.' "'Well, what shall we do, darling? We may find shelter further on.' But Tess, really tired by this time, flung herself upon an oblong slab that lay close at hand, and was sheltered from the wind by a pillar. Owing to the action of the sun during the preceding day, the stone was warm and dry, in comforting contrast to the rough and chill grass around, which had damped her skirts and shoes. "'I don't want to go any further, Angel,' she said, stretching out her hand for his. "'Can't we bide here?' "'I fear not. This spot is visible for miles by day, although it does not seem so now. "'One of my mother's people was a shepherd hereabouts, now I think of it, and you used to say at Talbothay's that I was a heathen. So now I am at home.' 
He knelt down beside her outstretched form and put his lips upon hers. Sleepy, are you, dear? I think you are lying on an altar. I like very much to be here, she murmured. It is so solemn and lonely, after my great happiness, with nothing but the sky above my face. It seems as if there were no folk in the world but we two, and I wish there were not, except Liza Lou. Clare thought she might as well rest here till it should get a little lighter, and he flung his overcoat upon her and sat down by her side. Angel, if anything happens to me, will you watch over Liza Lou for my sake? she asked, when they had listened a long time to the wind among the pillars. I will. She is so good and, and simple and pure. Oh, angel, I wish you would marry her if you lose me, as you will do shortly. Oh, if you would! If I lose you, I lose all, and she is my sister-in-law. Well, that's nothing, dearest. People marry sisters-in-law continually about Marlet, and Liza Lou is so gentle and sweet, and she is growing so beautiful. Oh, I could share you with her willingly when we are spirits. If you would train her and teach her, angel, and bring her up for your own self. She had all the best of me without the bad of me, and if she were to become yours, it would almost seem as if death had not divided us. Well, I have said it. I won't mention it again. She ceased, and he fell into thought. In the far northeast sky he could see between the pillars a level streak of light. The uniform concavity of black cloud was lifting bodily like the lid of a pot, letting in at the earth's edge the coming day, against which the towering monoliths and trilithons began to be blackly defined. "'Did they sacrifice to God here?' asked she. "'No,' said he. "'Who to?' "'I believe to the sun. That lofty stone set away by itself is in the direction of the sun, which will presently rise behind it. "'This reminds me, dear,' she said. "'You remember you never would interfere with any belief of mine before we were married. But I knew your mind all the same, and I thought as you thought, not from any reasons of my own, but because you thought so. Tell me now, angel, do you think we shall meet again after we are dead? I want to know.' He kissed her to avoid a reply at such a time. "'Oh, angel, I fear that means no,' said she, with a suppressed sob. "'And I wanted so to see you again, so much, so much. What, not even you and I, angel, who love each other so well?' Like a greater than himself, to the critical question at the critical time he did not answer, and they were again silent. In a minute or two her breathing became more regular, her clasp of his hand relaxed, and she fell asleep. The band of silver paleness along the east horizon made even the distant parts of the great plain appear dark and near, 
and the whole enormous landscape bore that impress of reserve, taciturnity, and hesitation which is usual just before day. The eastward pillars and their architraves stood up blackly against the light, and the great flame-shaped sunstone beyond them, and the stone of sacrifice midway. Presently the night wind died out, and the quivering little pools in the cup-like hollows of the stones lay still. At the same time something seemed to move on the verge of the dip eastward, a mere dot. It was the head of a man approaching them from the hollow beyond the sunstone. Clare wished they had gone onward, but in the circumstances decided to remain quiet. The figure came straight towards the circle of pillars in which they were. He heard something behind him, the brush of feet. Turning, he saw over the prostrate columns another figure. Then, before he was aware, another was at hand on the right, under a trilithon, and another on the left. The dawn shone full on the front of the man westward, and Clare could discern from this that he was tall and walked as if trained. They all closed in with evident purpose. Her story, then, was true. Springing to his feet, he looked around for a weapon, loose stone, means of escape, anything. By this time the nearest man was upon him. "'It is no use, sir,' he said. "'There are sixteen of us on the plain, and the whole country is reared.' "'Let her finish her sleep,' he implored in a whisper of the men as they gathered round. When they saw where she lay, which they had not done till then, they showed no objection, and stood watching her, as still as the pillars around. He went to the stone and bent over her, holding one poor little hand. Her breathing now was quick and small, like that of a lesser creature than a woman. All waited in the growing light, their faces and hands as if they were silvered, the remainder of their figures dark, the stones glistening green-gray, the plain still a mass of shade. Soon the light was strong, and a ray showed upon her unconscious form, peering under her eyelids and waking her. "'What is it, angel?' she said, starting up. "'Have they come for me?' "'Yes, dearest,' he said. "'They have come.' "'It is as it should be,' she murmured. "'Angel, I am almost glad. Yes, glad. This happiness could not have lasted it was too much i have had enough and now i shall not live for you to despise me she stood up shook herself and went forward neither of the men having moved i am ready she said quietly chapter fifty nine the city of winterster that fine old city, aforetime capital of Wessex, lay amidst its convex and concave downlands in all the brightness and warmth of a July morning. The gabled brick, tile, and freestone houses had almost dried off for the season their integument of lichen. The streams in the meadows were low, and in the sloping high street, from the west gateway to the medieval cross, and from the medieval cross to the bridge, that leisurely dusting and sweeping was in progress which usually ushers in an old-fashioned market-day. From the western gate aforesaid the highway, as every Wintoncestrian knows, 
ascends a long and regular incline of the exact length of a measured mile, leaving the houses gradually behind. Up this road from the precincts of the city two persons were walking rapidly, as if unconscious of the trying ascent, unconscious through preoccupation, and not through buoyancy. They had emerged upon this road through a narrow, barred wicket in a high wall a little lower down. They seemed anxious to get out of the sight of the houses and of their kind, and this road appeared to offer the quickest means of doing so. Though they were young, they walked with bowed heads, which gate of grief the sun's rays smiled on pitilessly. One of the pair was Angel Clare, the other a tall, budding creature, half-girl, half-woman, a spiritualized image of Tess, slighter than she, but with the same beautiful eyes, Clare's sister-in-law, Liza Lou. Their pale faces seemed to have shrunk to half their natural size. They moved on hand in hand, and never spoke a word, the drooping of their heads being that of Giotto's two apostles. When they had nearly reached the top of the great west hill, the clocks in the town struck eight. Each gave a start at the notes, and walking onward yet a few steps, they reached the first milestone, standing whitely on the green margin of the grass, and backed by the down, which here was open to the road. They entered upon the turf, and impelled by a force that seemed to overrule their will, suddenly stood still, turned, and waited in paralyzed suspense beside the stone. The prospect from this summit was almost unlimited. In the valley beneath lay the city they had just left, its more prominent buildings showing as in an isometric drawing, among them the broad cathedral tower, with its Norman windows and immense length of aisle and nave, the spires of St. Thomas's, the pinnacled tower of the college, and, more to the right, the tower and gables of the ancient hospice, where to this day the pilgrim may receive his dole of bread and ale. Behind the city swept the rotund upland of St. Catherine's Hill, further off, landscape beyond landscape, till the horizon was lost in the radiance of the sun hanging over it. Against these far stretches of country rose, in front of the other city edifices, a large red-brick building, with level grey roofs, and rows of short barred windows bespeaking captivity, the whole contrasting greatly by its formalism with the quaint irregularities of the Gothic erections. It was somewhat disguised from the road in passing it by yews and evergreen oaks, but it was visible enough up here. The wicket from which the pair had lately emerged was in the wall of this structure. From the middle of the building an ugly flat-topped octagonal tower ascended against the east horizon, and viewed from this spot, on its shady side and against the light, it seemed the one blot on the city's beauty. Yet it was with this blot, and not with the beauty, that the two gazers were concerned. Upon the cornice of the tower a tall staff was fixed. Their eyes were riveted on it. A few minutes after the hour had struck, something moved slowly up the staff, and extended itself upon the breeze. It was a black flag. Justice was done, and the President of the Immortals, in Escalian phrase, had ended his sport with Tess. 
and the d'urberville knights and dames slept on in their tombs unknowing the two speechless gazers bent themselves down to the earth as if in prayer and remained thus a long time absolutely motionless the flag continued to wave silently as soon as they had strength they arose joined hands again and went on end of tess of the d'urbervilles by thomas hardy